Section 24 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in October 2019. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. The Times of the Maoris, Part 2. 8. Maoris Visit Sydney. In 1793, Governor Hunter at Sydney directed that the convicts of Norfolk Island should be set to weave the fine flax that grew wild in that island. They tried but could make no cloth so fine and soft as that made by the Maoris out of very much the same sort of plant. A ship was sent to try and persuade some Maoris to come over and teach the art. The captain of the ship, being lazy or impatient, did not trouble to persuade. He seized two Maoris and carried them off. They were kept for six months at Norfolk Island, but Captain King treated them very well, and sent them back with ten sows, two boars, a supply of maize seed, and other good things to pay them for their time. When King became governor of New South Wales, he sent further presents over to Te Pehi, chief of the tribe to which these young men belonged, and hence Te Pehi longed to see the sender of these things. He and his four sons ventured to go in an English vessel to Sydney, where they were astonished at all they saw. On his return, Te Pehi induced a sailor named George Bruce, who had been kind to him when he was sick on board ship, to settle in the tribe. The young Englishman married Te Pehi's most charming daughter, and was tattooed, and became the first of the Pakeha Maoris, or white men who lived in Maori fashion. Pleased by Te Pehi's account of what he had seen, other Maoris took occasional trips to Sydney, working their passages in whaling ships. 9. Friendly Relations Meanwhile, English vessels more and more frequently visited New Zealand for pork and flax and cowdie pine, or else to catch seals, or merely to take a rest after a long whaling trip. The Bay of Islands became the chief anchorage for that purpose, and thither the Maoris gathered to profit by the trade. Some of the more adventurous, when they found that the English did them no harm, shipped their sailors for a voyage on board the whalers, but though they made good seamen, they were sometimes sulky and revengeful, and rarely continued at it more than two or three years. In 1805 a Maori went with an English surgeon all the way to England, and returned with the most astounding tales of London and English wonders. During the next four or five years several other Maoris went to England, while, on the other hand, a very few respectable white men began to settle down in New Zealand. They were far superior to the rough sailors and liberated convicts of Sydney, who so far had been the most frequent visitors, so that mutual goodwill seemed to be established, as the Maoris found that there was much they could gain by the visits of the white men. But all this friendliness was marred by an unfortunate occurrence. 10. The Boyd Massacre In 1809 a ship named the Boyd 
sailed from Sydney to go to England round Cape Horn. She had on board seventy white people, including some children of officers at Sydney who were on their way to England to be educated. As she was to call at New Zealand to get some cowdy spars, five Maoris went with her, working their passage over. One of these Maoris, named Tara, was directed during the voyage to do something which he refused to do. The captain caused him to be twice flogged. When the ship anchored in a bay a little to the north of the Bay of Islands, Tara went ashore and showed to his tribe his back all scarred with the lash. Revenge was agreed on. The captain was enticed ashore with a few men, and they were suddenly attacked and all killed. Then the Maoris quietly got alongside the ship, rushed on board, and commenced the work of massacre among men, women, and children, who were all unarmed. Some of the children fell and clasped the feet of Tara, begging him to save them, but the young savage brained them without mercy. All were slain except a woman and two children who hid themselves during the heat of the massacre, and a boy who was spared because he had been kind to Tara. All the bodies were taken ashore and eaten. One of the chiefs, while curiously examining a barrel of gunpowder, caused it to explode, blowing himself and a dozen others to pieces. Tepehi, the head chief of the Ngapuhi, was extremely vexed when he heard of this occurrence, and took some trouble to rescue the four survivors, but five whaling vessels gathered for revenge. They landed their crews, who shot thirty Maoris, whether belonging to Tara's tribe or not, and in their blind fury burned Tepehi's village, severely wounding the chief himself. This outrage stopped all friendly intercourse for a long time. The whalers shot the Maoris whenever they saw them, about a hundred being killed in the next three years, while the Maoris killed and ate any white people they could catch. Thus, in 1816, the Agnes, an American brig, happened to be wrecked on their shores. They killed and ate everybody on board, except one man, who was tattooed and kept for a slave during twelve years. 11. The Missionaries in spite of all these atrocities, a band of missionaries had the courage to settle in New Zealand and begin the work of civilizing these Maori tribes. This enterprise was the work of a notable man named Samuel Marston, who had in early life been a blacksmith in England, but had devoted himself with rare energy to the laborious task of passing the examinations needed to make him a clergyman. He was sent out to be the chaplain to the convicts at Sydney, and his zeal, his faith in the work he had to do, and his roughly eloquent style made him successful where more cultured clergymen would have failed. For fourteen years he toiled to reform convicts, soldiers, and officers in Sydney, and when Governor King went home to England in 1807, after his term was expired, Marston went with him on a visit to his friends. While in London, Marston brought before the Mission Society the question of doing something to Christianize these fierce but intelligent people, and the Society not only agreed, but employed two missionaries named Hall and King to undertake the work. When Marston, along with these courageous men, started back to Sydney in the Anne convict ship in 1809, there was on board, strangely enough, 
a maori chief called ruatara this young fellow was a nephew of hongi the powerful head chief of the ngapuhi tribe four years before being anxious to see something of the wonders of civilized life he had shipped as a sailor on board a whaler he had twice been to sydney and had voyaged up and down all the pacific at length in eighteen o nine he had gone to london where he was lost in surprise at all he saw the climate however tried him severely and he was sick and miserable on the voyage back to sydney marston was kind to him and gave him a home in his own house ruatara had many troubles and dangers to meet through many months before he was at last settled among his own people meanwhile the new governor of sydney refused to allow the missionaries to go to new zealand the massacre of the sixty-six people of the boyd had roused a feeling of horror and it seemed a wicked waste of life to try to live among savages so fierce the missionaries were therefore employed in sydney in eighteen thirteen governor Macquarie directed that every vessel leaving for new zealand should give bonds to the extent of a thousand pounds to guarantee that the white men should not carry off the natives or interfere with their sacred places then the trouble between the two races quieted down a little and in eighteen fourteen the missionaries thought they might at least make further inquiries a brig called the active of one hundred tons was bought and on board it went hall with another missionary called kendall grandfather of the poet who had lately come out they reached the bay of islands taking with them abundance of presents they saw ruatara and persuaded him with his uncle hongi and other chiefs to go to sydney in the active and there discussed the question of a mission station they went and hongi guaranteed the protection of his tribe the ngapuhi if the missionaries would settle in their territory twelve the mission station it was in november eighteen fourteen that the active sailed with the mission colony consisting of kendall king and hall their wives and five children and a number of mechanics in all twenty-five europeans together with eight maoris they took three horses a bull two cows and other livestock and after a quick passage anchored near the north of the north island marston was with them as a visitor to see the place fairly started he was troubled on landing to find that the ngapuhi were at war with their near neighbors the wangaroans and he saw that little progress would be made till these tribes were reconciled marston fearlessly entered with only one companion into the heart of the hostile tribe met tara the instigator of the boyd massacre and slept that night in the very midst of the wangaroans wrapped up in his great coat he lay close by tara surrounded by the sleeping forms of men and women who only a few years before had gathered to the horrid feast surprised at this friendly trust the wangaroans were fascinated and subsequently were led by him like children they were soon induced to rub noses with the chiefs of ngapuhi as a sign of reconciliation and were then all invited on board the active where a merry breakfast brought old enemies together in friendly intercourse the missionaries with twelve axes bought two hundred acres of land on the shore of the bay of islands half an acre was soon enclosed by a fence 
a few rough houses were built and a pole set up upon which floated a white flag with a cross and a dove and the words good tidings ruatara made a pulpit out of an old canoe covered it with cloth and put seats round it there on christmas day eighteen fourteen marston preached the first sermon in new zealand to a crowded maori audience who understood not one word of what was said but who perhaps were benefited by the general impressiveness of the scene in the following february marston returned to sydney thinking the mission in a fair way of success but all was not to be so harmonious as he dreamt the liberated convicts who formed the bulk of the crews of sealing and whaling vessels treated the natives with coarseness and arrogance the maoris were quick to revenge themselves and the murders thefts and quarrels along all the shore did more harm than the handful of missionaries could do good three or four times they wished to leave and as often did marston return and persuade them to stay their lives at least were safe for hongi the ngapuhi chief found that they were useful in the way of bringing trade about but he was dissatisfied because they would not allow guns and powder to be sold by the white men to him and his people thirteen tribal wars hongi saw that the tribe which possessed most guns was sure to get the upper hand of all the others he therefore contrived in another way to secure these wonderful weapons for in eighteen twenty when kendall went home to england for a trip hongi went with him and saw with constant wonder the marvels of the great city the sight of the fine english regiments the arsenals the theatres the big elephant at exeter change menagerie all impressed deeply the maori from new zealand forests he stayed for a while at cambridge assisting a professor to compile a dictionary of the maori language and going to church regularly all the time then he had an audience from george the fourth who gave him many presents and among others a complete suit of ancient armour for a whole season hongi was a sort of lion among london society people crowded to see a chief who had eaten dozens of men and so many presents were given him that when he came back to sydney he was a rich man he sold everything however except his suit of armour and with the money he bought three hundred muskets and plenty of powder which he took with him to new zealand having reached his home he informed his tribe of the career of conquest he proposed with these muskets he was going to destroy every enemy there is but one king in england he said there shall be only one among the maoris he soon had a force of a thousand warriors whom he embarked on board a fleet of canoes and took to the southern shores of the hauraki gulf where the ngatimaru lived ancient enemies of the ngapuhi who however felt secure in their numbers and in the strength of their great pa totara but hongi captured the pa and slew five hundred of the unfortunate inmates the ngatimaru tribe then retreated south into the valley of the waikato river and summoned their men and all their friends a total of over three thousand were arrayed on that fatal battlefield hongi with his muskets gained a complete victory he shot the hostile chief with his own gun and tearing out his eyes swallowed them on the field of battle over a thousand were killed and hongi and his men feasted on the spot for some days till three hundred bodies had been eaten the victors then returned 
bearing in their canoes another thousand captives of whom many were slain and cooked to provide a share of the horrid feast to the women of the tribe in his bloodthirsty wars hongi showed great skill and energy during the two following years he defeated slaughtered and ate large numbers of the surrounding tribes and when the number of these unfortunate people withdrew to a pa of enormous strength nearly surrounded by a bend of the waikato river he dragged his canoes over to that river ascended it dashed at the steep cliffs the ditches and palisades and once more the muskets won the day a thousand fell in the fight then the women and children were slaughtered in heaps the strong tribe of the araba further south had their chief pa on an island in the middle of lake rotorua hongi with great labor carried his canoes over to the lake the spear-armed maoris could do nothing in defense while he shot at them from the lake and when he assaulted the island though they came down to the water's edge to repel him again there was victory for the muskets thus did hongi conquer till the whole north island owned his ascendancy but in eighteen twenty seven his career came to an end for having quarrelled with his former friends the tribe of which tara was chief he killed them all but twenty but in the fight was himself shot through the lungs for that tribe had now many muskets also and a ball fired when the massacre was nearly over passed through hongi's chest leaving a hole which though temporarily healed caused his death a few months later pomare succeeded him as chief of the ngapuhi and made that tribe still the terror of the island at one pa pomare killed four hundred men and he had his own way for a time in all his fights but the other tribes now began to see that they could not possibly save themselves except by getting muskets also and as they offered ten times their value for them in pork and flax and other produce english vessels brought them over in plenty the remnant of the waikato tribe having become well armed and well exercised in shooting under te wero wero they laid an ambush for pomare and killed him with almost the whole of the five hundred men who were with him the other tribes joined te wero wero and in successive battles ruined the ngapuhi te wero wero held the leadership for a time during which he almost exterminated the taranaki tribe he was practically lord of all the north island till he met his match in rauparaha the most determined and wily of all the maori leaders he was the chief of a tribe living in the south of the north island and he gathered a wild fighting band out of the ruined tribes of his own and the surrounding districts many battles were fought between him and te wero wero in which sometimes as many as a thousand muskets were in use on each side rao paraha was at length overcome and with difficulty escaped across the strait to the south island while te wero wero massacred and enslaved all over the north island cooking as many as two hundred bodies after a single fight and yet the evil was in a way its own cure for through strenuous endeavors by this time every tribe had a certain proportion of its men well armed with muskets and thus no single tribe ever afterwards got the same cruel ascendancy that was obtained first by the ngapuhi and then by the waikato tribe 
but fights and ambushes slaughters the eating of prisoners and all the horrid scenes of maori war went on from week to week all over the north island end of section twenty four